following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So it, it was quite timely that um, I was talking to Ryan this morning because in speaking about the fruit of the Spirit, uh, I don't have a lot of personal experience to bring to this metaphor. Uh, I am a, an absolutely hopeless gardener. Uh, Anna and I are pretty much as bad as each other. We've sat in our lounge and watched pot plants die right outside our, <laughs> our lounge window without a care in the world. We're, ab- we're absolutely shocking. So uh, I had a good chat to Ryan this week and tried to glean a little bit of wisdom about gardening and planting and the whole horticultural process because um, of the image that we're looking at this morning, which is the fruit of the Spirit. And it's such a rich image and a great metaphor for our spiritual life. But um, because I don't have a single green finger, uh, I needed some outside help. So I am channeling Ryan, some of Ryan's wisdom to you this morning as we look at this whole metaphor. But we're in this series on the Holy Spirit. And uh, this is, we're in now the second half of the series. So far, we've looked at the role of the Spirit uh, through about half of the biblical story. We've looked at the Spirit's role in creation. We've looked at the Spirit's role in the life of Jesus. Last week, we looked at the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit was poured out upon all followers of Jesus, upon all of God's people. And so now, we are those who live on the other side of Pentecost, And uh, we live downstream from that event. Now the Holy Spirit has been given. The Holy Spirit is the personal presence of God in our lives. And so now the question is, what is the ongoing role of the Spirit in our lives? The Spirit's not just given to us to give us emotional experiences or to give us these mountaintop kind of moments. The Holy Spirit has work to do in our lives. He's given for a particular reason. He has an intention within our ongoing lives, and we're going to spend the second half of this series looking at what that work is, looking at the work of the Spirit in our personal lives, in the life of our church community, and in the life of the broader world. And so today, I want to look at the relationship between the Holy Spirit and our character. It's not the most glamorous part of the Spirit's work. You know, we're we're often kind of drawn to the experiential side of the Holy Spirit, We love the idea of being filled with the Spirit. We want to be touched by the Spirit of God. We want to be empowered by the Spirit and have these experiences. But what about the ongoing, daily, quiet, often unseen work of the Holy Spirit in shaping our character into the image of Jesus? It doesn't really get us as as excited as some of the other stuff does, but this is among the most important work of the Spirit in our life to transform our character into the character of Jesus. Talking about character, uh, my character was sorely tested this last week. I was quite grumpy earlier in the week. It was an organic collection at our place, and Anna and I didn't have much to put out, so we just had a couple of things that we put out on the curbside. But somebody else came along and dumped a whole lot of their stuff on top of our stuff out on the front of our property. Now, that in itself is not too bad, can live with that but one of the things that they dumped on the pile was this big rubber tire and you know they don't collect tires in the inorganic sure enough last monday the inorganic truck came along collected everything from the pile and left us this massive tire so now we have inherited a big black ugly tire 
And I was talking to my neighbor, Abby, about this. And she saw the guy dump the stuff on our property. Uh, we weren't home at the time. She saw him do this, and she, and she yelled out to him, especially when he put the tire down. She yelled out and said, hey, you can't put tires down in the inorganic collection. And the guy apparently looked at her and said, oh, okay, sorry, and took the tire off the pile and put it back on his truck. And then she went inside, looked out the window a few minutes later, and the tire was back on the pile. So this guy had waited for her to go inside, got the tire back off his truck, and put it back down on our pile. I thought of a few things that I would like to dump on his front yard. thought of a few things I'd like to do to him with his own tire. So uh, that was really a character test for both of us, right? For him and for me. That guy had a character choice to make in that moment about what he was going to do with his tire. And he knew what the right thing to do was. He'd been told what the right thing to do was, but he just made a choice. Whether he thought about it or not, I don't know. But he made a choice because it was convenient for him. It was easy. It solved his problem, even though it created a problem for somebody else. And then I had a character choice to make in terms of how I responded to that situation and how I thought about him in my mind and how much I crucified him in my own mind and the things that I thought of doing to him in my own mind. I had a choice about how I processed that whole event. Now, I would say that we all face these kinds of character decisions every day. Hopefully you don't go around dumping tires on other people's properties, but we face choices like this. A hundred small little choices in the context of our everyday lives. A lot of them we're not even aware of. We're making choices all the time about how we speak to one another, about how we act, about how we think, about what we look at, about who we are in relationships with other people, about who we are when no one else is looking. The sum total of our thinking, speaking, acting, our character. We're making character choices all the time. And the scary thing is a lot of the time our character is being formed without us being very aware of it. Because we have these default patterns of speaking and thinking and acting, just our go-to behaviors that we roll out and it happens below the radar of our conscious awareness a lot of the time. So our character is being shaped every day and much of it we just don't consciously think about. But then there's other times we do think about it. We often do think about our moral choices, our ethical choices and we reflect on our behavior we think about what we're doing and often in those situations we feel this kind of pull in two different directions you know this feeling when you feel like an internal tension within you being pulled between what you know is right and what you genuinely want to do as the right thing but then on the other hand this inclination that you've got and what you just feel like doing and what comes naturally and just what you want to do in the moment we feel like split personalities, you know. We, we know that we should get up when the alarm clock goes off. We know we need to in order to get our stuff done and get to work on time or whatever the first thing is of the day. We know that that is the right thing to do. We want to get up when the alarm clock goes off. That's why we set it at a certain time. But when the alarm clock goes off, it's brutally hard to get out of bed. And the snooze button is so big, so easy. It's to push the snooze, push the snooze again, keep pushing the snooze Minute after precious minute, we know what we want to do. We know the kind of people we want to be. It's just brutally hard to do it in the moment. There's something that's pulling us the other way. We all face this inner tension all the time, like two different forces pulling at us. And the Bible has a particular way of explaining this inner conflict that we feel, which is really the battle for our character. I want to go to a passage today in Galatians chapter 5 which talks about this inner conflict that we have, and in particular, the role of the Holy Spirit in all of this. 
Galatians 5, verse 16. Paul says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Or so you do not do whatever you want, some translations say. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So the way that Paul frames this whole conflict that we each feel is that it's a battle between our flesh and the Spirit. A battle between the flesh and the Spirit. Now the word flesh is the word sarx in Greek. Greek, sarx. And a lot of the time in Scripture, it simply means our physical human body, our flesh. We are flesh and blood creatures. When it's used in a neutral sense, that's usually what it means. But when it's used negatively, as it is here, it doesn't have the same meaning. It's really important because some people come to this passage about the flesh and the spirit, and they assume that what Paul's saying is that the physical part of us, our physical body, is bad. And the spiritual part of us, the non-physical part of us, is good. And so on that basis, people get this idea that the battle is really between our body and our spirit, that it's between our physicality and the non-physical part of us. And that leads you down a really dangerous path towards devaluing and degrading your body and assuming that your body is the source of all wrong and all sin. And that's not the case at all. In fact, your body is an essential instrument in the pursuit of producing the fruit of the spirit. Your body is essential in engaging in the life of the spirit. It's not the bad part of you at all. So when flesh is used negatively here, what we're talking about is our old identity. This battle between flesh and spirit is fundamentally a battle between two different identities, not two bits of you, not two different pieces of you, not even two different forces pulling away at you. It's a battle between two identities. The flesh is your old identity. It's who we are outside of Jesus. It's who you are outside of God's grace outside of God's saving presence, outside of a relationship with Christ, outside of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Our flesh is who we are in our own natural, sinful, and fallen state. It's the identity that we inherited from Adam. It's the identity that we stay in until we become a follower of Jesus. Our flesh, not a piece of you, it's all of you, mind, soul, body, spirit. It's an integrated whole. It's just your old identity, your old self outside of Christ. Now, when you come to Christ and when you belong to Jesus, that old identity dies. That old identity is conquered. When you place your faith in Jesus, Paul says that old self, he talks about this in Romans, that old self is crucified with Christ, the flesh, the old identity. It's hung on the cross. It's crucified with Jesus so that its power is done away with. And what happens is that when you come to Christ, you receive a new identity. You receive the identity of the Spirit, the personal presence of God, the Holy Spirit in your life, taking up residence within your body, and that's your new identity, grounded and established in the Holy Spirit. The flesh is conquered. Its power is stripped away. Its governance over your life ends at that point that you place your faith in Christ. So in one sense, the battle between flesh and spirit, if you're a Christian, is not really a battle at all because the spirit's one. 
because the Spirit has conquered your life. The Spirit has conquered the flesh. Jesus is your reigning identity if you're a Christian. You are in Him. The flesh has no more power. It has no more control. It's not your master. It's not your Lord. The flesh has been crucified with Christ. You are in the Spirit. If you belong to Jesus, you live by the Spirit. Your life is in the Spirit. That is your identity. The problem is that that theology doesn't square very well with our experience day to day, does it? If the Spirit is our reigning identity, if the flesh has been crucified, why do we still struggle so much with the pull of the flesh? If my identity is in Jesus, if my life is governed by the Holy Spirit, why do I have an insatiable craving for that LMP white chocolate? Man, that's good stuff. I can't get enough of that. I was introduced to it this week. That's my new temptation. Why do we feel the pull of the flesh so strongly if we're in the Holy Spirit? If, we're, if, if, if the Spirit is now our new identity, why do we get grumpy at our flatmate or our husband or wife? If our identity is in the Holy Spirit now, why do we look at things we shouldn't look at on TV or on the internet? If our identity is in the Spirit, why do we still feel so strongly this pull of that old identity, wanting to drag us away from the life that God's calling us to. Well, let me give you an illustration that might help here. In 1950, Tibet became part of China. The Chinese army moved in, conquered one of the border cities, put huge pressure on the Tibetan government to surrender to Chinese sovereignty. So today, Tibet is officially part of the People's Republic of China. But you and I know that there's a huge resurgence against Chinese sovereignty among Tibetans. That there's ongoing resistance to that rule. And while it's officially true that Tibet is part of China, there's huge opposition to that rule among Tibetans. Often violent protests, often outcries. There's insert constant insurgencies, and there have been since 1950, against Chinese rule. Now, that's a little bit like the battle that we experience between the flesh and the spirit. If you are a follower of Jesus, your life has been conquered by Christ. Your life is now the territory of the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean that the flesh just goes quietly into the night. That doesn't mean that you no longer feel that temptation. There is in your life an insurgence against the spirit. The flesh is still going to seek to do all it can to bring you down and to pull you away from following the Spirit and surrendering to the work of the Spirit. There's an insurgency in your life of the flesh. As long as we still live within this natural, fallen age of sin, characterized by the brokenness of the world that we see around us, as long as Satan is still on the loose in this world, seeking to bring people down and do all he can to pull us away from God, we're still going to battle against the insurgency of the flesh. The flesh is still going to fight guerrilla warfare in your life to try and do as much damage to your character as it can, even while your life is governed by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't have any objective power to do that. It doesn't have any rightful governorship in your life. You are now ruled by Christ. But the flesh is going to fight guerrilla warfare and do all it can to drag you away from God. So how do we deal with this, this pull between the way of the Spirit, the life of the Spirit, but the constant pull of the flesh? This is where Paul 
introduces his famous passage on the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. If you had a background in Sunday school, you probably know about the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, you might have memorized the fruit of the Spirit. You might have sung little songs about the fruit of the Spirit, especially if you listen to the music machine. Any music machine fans out there, all the little songs about the fruit of the Spirit. But often we know the fruit of the Spirit more than we actually practice the fruit of the Spirit. It's a lot easier just to memorize the list, isn't it, than to put these things into practice in our lives. I think the reason that we struggle so much to produce these qualities in our life is because often we approach this completely the wrong way. What typically happens is that we read this passage about the fruit of the Spirit, we look at these wonderful qualities of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, so on, and we feel really convicted, and we decide that we are going to be a better person, that we are going to practice this, and we are going to make these things true for us. So we go out there and we decide, I'm going to be more loving I'm going to be more patient. I'm going to be a more kind person. I'm going to have more joy in my life if it kills me. So we go out the door, and Monday goes really well. And we are loving to our colleagues, and we are loving to our spouse or to our flatmate, to our family. And we have quite a lot of joy, and we spend some time with God, and we feel connected to God, and it's going great. Tuesday doesn't go so well. We're grumpy, we're tired, Sunday seems further ago, we, we're irritable, God seems much more distant from us, Wednesday's pretty hopeless, and then the rest of the week's gone. That's typically how it goes when we get all fired up about the fruit of the Spirit and we're going to produce these things in our life. We have like two good days, and then we crash and burn. That's because our instinctive response to this is the trying harder response. And we've just got to try harder to produce this fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And sometimes we do try really hard. But you cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit through willpower alone. You just can't. You cannot produce these qualities just through trying harder, summoning all of your moral strength and trying to be a really loving person. You can't do it. That would be the equivalent of standing in front of a fruit tree and yelling at it to produce fruit. You know, just yelling at the tree, come on, where's the Fijoas? Now, if you saw someone doing that, you would think they needed to be admitted to some kind of institution. But how many of us live our spiritual lives that way? And we're confused why we don't bear the fruit of the Spirit in our life. We're confused why we don't see these qualities in our lives because we're just standing there yelling at a fruit tree. That's all we're doing. We're just demanding ourselves and our willpower to conjure up this fruit. It doesn't happen like that. It doesn't work that way. Whose responsibility is it to produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life? The Holy Spirit. Isn't that why it's called the fruit of the Spirit? It's not called the fruit of your labor. It's not the fruit of your effort. It's not the fruit of your willpower. It's not the fruit of your trying harder. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit's responsibility to produce this fruit in our life. And we need to be very careful about distinguishing our role and God's role in the pursuit of of a godly life. It is not your responsibility to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean you've got no responsibility. It doesn't mean that we just sit back, act however you want to act, 
and God's automatically going to produce these qualities in our life. We do have a responsibility, and Paul mentions it here. Not once does he tell us that we should produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, but he does give us this commandment in verse 25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. He words it a little bit differently back up in verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's the only time that Paul gives instruction in this chapter, is that we walk by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. He's very clear. The production of the fruit is the responsibility of the Holy Spirit. Our responsibility is to walk by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit, and that's a different thing. I think the best way that I can describe what it means to keep in step with the Holy Spirit in our lives is to come back to this image of the fruit tree. To keep in step with the Spirit means to be a good gardener. You can't produce fruit in your fruit trees. You certainly can't do it by yelling at the tree. There's nothing you can do. The fruit is the result of a natural horticultural process, the result of a natural agricultural process. You can't produce the fruit. What you can do is be a really good gardener. What you can do is look after that tree and tend to it. And it seems to me, and again, I'm channeling Ryan's wisdom to you here, not my own, that there's basically two things that go into being a good gardener of a fruit tree. The first is making sure that the tree is well watered and well planted. The fruitfulness of a tree is largely dependent on its root system. How deep the roots go, what kind of soil the roots go into, and whether those roots can suck in the nourishment and the nutrients they need to support the life and the health of a tree. It's the same in our life of the Spirit. How fruitful our lives are going to be depends on how deep our root system goes and how well established we are in God and how well nourished our lives are in the Holy Spirit. If you want to be outwardly fruitful in your Christian life, you need to make sure you're pushing your roots down deep into the soil of the Spirit, deep down into the soil of God's grace, all the way down to where His streams of living water flow. We need to make sure that we are increasingly planted and established in the Holy Spirit, drawing from the deep reservoir of the Spirit, allowing the Spirit to water our lives, nourish our lives continually so that we get the nutrients, the spiritual nourishment that we need in order to be able to grow. If you want to grow up as a Christian, you've got to grow down. You've got to grow deeper into communion and relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. That's not automatically going to happen in your life. That's not just going to happen without you thinking about it. It's going to take intentional planning. It's going to take focus. It's going to take some practices that help your spiritual roots to go down really deep in relationship with God. Practices particularly around Scripture and prayer. There's nothing new here. There's nothing novel about this. I don't have any new wisdom about this stuff. I have only some very old wisdom. Scripture and prayer. The basic dynamics of our relationship with God. Scripture is the primary way that God speaks to us through the Holy Spirit. Prayer is the primary way that we speak to God through the Holy Spirit. It's the back and forth of your relationship with God. And you just can't think that if those things are not happening in your life, you're going to grow spiritually. You won't. You'll be like a fruit tree planted on concrete. 
Unless you have a commitment to a regular practice of Scripture and prayer, your roots are going to remain at surface level. They're not going to go anywhere. And you're going to end up being a withered fruit tree rather than a fruitful fruit tree. I know it's not easy to do this stuff. I think most Christians agree that Scripture is important. Most Christians agree that prayer is important. We just don't do it, do we? We just find it really hard. We're too distracted. We're too preoccupied. We're too unmotivated, whatever it is. But this is at the heart of our spiritual life. This is at the heart of our spiritual growth. These practices are tough. They're not necessarily compatible with 21st life, the sheer pace of life today, because they require slowing down. They require solitude. They require stillness. They require focused attention. These things don't come naturally in our lives at all. But that's probably why 21st century life also often feels shallow and superficial, because we are not well planted as people. We are not deep enough with our spiritual roots. We need to return to these ancient disciplines of Scripture and prayer. And the good thing is you can do this. It's not impossible. I really believe every one of you can develop a regular practice of intaking the Scriptures, being watered by the Scriptures, and praying to God from your heart. It doesn't matter whether you're a solo mum with four kids or a corporate executive with a crazy travel schedule, whether you're a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, it doesn't matter. Every one of us can do this. Because really what we're talking about is the formation of habit. And habits are our best friend and our worst enemy, aren't they? Because once habits are formed, they carry us and they sustain us. What we're talking about is developing a habit of internalizing Scripture and praying to God. A regular habit, a daily habit. It means finding a time and a place to be alone with God and draw the nourishment that you need from Him. I think it's very hard to sustain this over time unless you have a set time and place. You may be able to, but it's very difficult. If you can establish, at least initially, a set time and place to be with God, to be in His presence, to be focused on Him, to center your heart and mind on Him. And the way you fill those times is up to you. Scripture can look so different. It's not one size fits all. You can read, you can study, you can memorize, you can meditate, you can listen audibly to audio Bible. And prayer can look like a huge diversity of things, not necessarily even speaking. I often go through a time with God and no words come out of my mouth. It's the posture of our heart. Prayer is turning our heart towards God, being aware of His presence, being conscious of Him there with us. Sometimes it's speaking. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just enjoying the presence of God, being reminded that we are there. Scripture and prayer are the basic means by which the Spirit of God is going to water our lives. And over time, those things will be hugely determinative of your fruitfulness in the Christian life. Can I encourage you, if you don't have a regular practice of Scripture and prayer, to decide today to start that. Don't start with an hour. It's unmanageable. Just start with a few minutes if you've never done this before. Just start with something realistic and something attainable. Being still in the presence of God, listening to Him through Scripture, communicating with Him through prayer. It's the watering can of the Spirit by which our lives are going to be nourished. Now, the other part of being a good gardener of our character is pruning. Now, this is pretty uncomfortable stuff. It's pretty essential, or so I'm told, with fruit trees. Pruning is cutting away. Ryan gave me the three Ds of pruning. Dead, damaged, diseased branches. 
That's what you look for. And you cut them out so that you take away stuff that's not growing to, to allow more sunlight to get to the tree, allow more oxygen to get to the tree, allow the stuff that is growing to grow better and to grow more fully. It's, again, a rich image, isn't it, for our spiritual lives, this idea of spiritual pruning, that our responsibility is to look for those areas of our character that are dead, diseased, and damaged, and with the help of the Spirit, to cut those out, cut them away, to allow real growth to happen. Now, this takes a level of self-awareness that we often don't have, even to be able to identify the stuff in our lives that needs to be pruned, the stuff that needs to be cut away. The reality is there's a lot of stuff about our lives and about our character right now that we don't know. But other people do. Other people know things about your character that you don't see. They see some things in your life, and they wish they could tell you about those things. But they don't feel like you'd take it very well if they did, and so they hold back. We lack self-awareness, and this is a great argument to place yourself in relationship with someone else who you can be accountable to who you give permission to put their finger on things in your life that need to be pruned, things that may need to be cut away. And you give them permission because you trust them and you know they're going to say it with grace, but you open up your life to them and you ask them to let you know if they see things because it's the only way that we're going to identify and therefore be able to deal with a lot of this stuff. And when you do see these things and we do become conscious of areas in our character that need work, the hard part is then dealing with them. And we're back to the idea of habit formation. Because really what this involves is the breaking of current habits and the replacing of those habits with new habits. And I think the battle for our character and the work of the Spirit in our life and the work of spiritual pruning is done in a thousand little ways through the day. It's not always the big decisions. It's not these obvious things. It's a, it's a small little tiny decision that adds up and up and up. The thousands of times that we do these things, choose this way or that way, that's what determines our character. Spiritual pruning are those choices that you make in the moment, almost without thinking about them, but with just enough thought that you can catch yourself and with the Spirit's help intervene and choose a different path. It means that when someone snaps at you, when someone grumps at you, that you choose how you're going to respond to that and that you choose not just to snap back or grump back but you choose to de-escalate that situation by speaking a gentle word, a loving word, a gracious word. It means that that bitterness that's in your heart about a person that has wronged you or wounded you, that resentment that you have towards someone who's given you a hard time, someone that you get really frustrated with, it means choosing how you are going to deal with those feelings. Are you just going to allow yourself to be consumed by that bitterness or are you going to, in the power of the Spirit, choose a different course and prune that bitterness? And when those thoughts come up in your mind again and you feel all that anger rising up again, you choose to go through a process again of forgiveness and laying down the debt that person owes you and giving their life again to God and choosing not to harbor these negative thoughts where we crucify them in our minds. It's a choice you make in the moment. It's the choice that when something comes on the TV or the internet that you know you shouldn't be watching, that it's not healthy and it's not wholesome, that we choose to change the channel or click away or close the app or whatever it is. We make these little choices every day and these choices add up to form our character. 
It's not easy to do, but this is the work of spiritual pruning. And it relies again on us being anchored in relationship with God. Unless you're being nourished regularly by the Spirit in your life, this is just going to become legalism. It's just going to become works. It's just going to go back to trying harder to do stuff. It's got to be the natural outflow of a relationship. That's why the time spent in prayer and Scripture is important. It makes it easier for us to walk with the Spirit during the day, to hear the voice of the Spirit, to sense the prompting of the Spirit when something's just not, sure, not as it should be, the prompting to choose another path, to look away, think in a different direction, act in a different direction. That's the work of the Spirit, but we need to tune into Him if we're going to have any chance of undertaking the spiritual pruning in our lives. But as we do these things, as we become well-planted Christians, as we become regularly watered Christians by the nourishment of the Spirit in our lives ongoing, and as we regularly engage in spiritual pruning, cutting away the things that are dead and diseased and damaged, we'll find over time that the Holy Spirit does His work and produces the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, just as He promises that He will. And you will find as you engage in these things and as you become a better gardener of your character, the Spirit's going to produce this fruit as naturally as a fruit tree producing its fruit in season. It's not going to be something you conjure up. It's not going to be through just summoning willpower and trying to be more loving. You're just fine. You become a more loving person. The fruit is born in your life as the result of good gardening and the work of the Spirit. And let me just say that all of this needs to be so wrapped up in the grace of God. I'm so conscious of how this can all just be heard as works and stuff that we need to do. And if we run out of here and we just try to do these things in our own effort, we're going to fail. And even with the best of intentions and all the help the Spirit gives, we're still often going to fail. And we need to rest on and rely on the constant forgiving work of God in our heart. We are going to mess up. We are going to blow it. We are going to stuff up often. That's where we need to remember that we are already loved. We're already forgiven. We already have the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God doesn't call us to do this out of guilt. He doesn't want us to do this out of shame or condemnation or obligation. But as a growth in the grace of God, all spiritual growth is ultimately growth in the grace of God who has been so good to us. And really what this is now is just us outworking practically in our lives what we've already been made to be in Christ which is holy and righteous. It's allowing our lives to take on that character that God has already given us inwardly by the presence of His Holy Spirit. So as we undertake this journey in your life, maybe God's prompting you this morning with an area of your character that needs attention. Maybe God's prompting you with how well planted and how well watered you are and nudging you to begin a practice of being regularly watered and nourished through spirit and word, through scripture and prayer. Maybe there's some spiritual pruning that needs to take place in that uncomfortable process of breaking some habits, some ingrained habits. Maybe they've been there for a long time, habits of thinking, habits of speaking, habits of acting. God's putting his finger on it today and saying, there's something that I want to work on with you so that you can get rid of the dead branches and allow my spirit to produce true spiritual fruit in your lives. Can I encourage you to respond to that? Not to ignore the voice, but to lean into it. 
to do the work that's required and to draw from the full and vast resources of the Holy Spirit who is right now living within you if you belong to Jesus. Let me finish by reading you from Scripture a beautiful description of a good, strong fruit tree, the kind of tree that God wants us to become in the power of the Holy Spirit from Psalm chapter 1. And as I read this, you might just want to close your eyes and make this your prayer and make this your affirmation and ask God to make this true and real in your life. Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Holy Spirit, we long for you to make us those trees we long to see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. God, I confess that as, as I look in my life, I, just, I see precious little of it often. I don't have the character that I really desire to have. And Holy Spirit, we acknowledge this morning that this is your work and not ours. But you do call us to be good gardeners. So challenge us, God, and prompt us. And stir our hearts, Lord, if there are steps that we need to take today. Holy Spirit, we desire for you to have your way in our lives and for the obstacles that we so often put there to be removed. Work within our character, we pray, and produce spiritual fruit in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.